Hey folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, one of the last Arlington, Texas shows. Today is episode 638. It's Monday, April the 4th, 2011, and we are uh, getting ready for our big bug out to Arkansas Going up there this week to uh, get see to getting the internet installed in the new office and maybe getting some office furniture put in so that when I go up there I can actually work. And uh, so this may be the last time that we ever have a week where some shows are missed because of an Arkansas trip anyway. I might occasionally actually take something called vacation. I don't do that often. I am going to try to leave some behind some shows for you. I mean, we're basically out of here tomorrow. We're loading a truck tomorrow anyway, so I don't know how much I'm going to be able to get done tomorrow. But I do have an interview set up with Ron Hood uh, for 1 o'clock this afternoon. I'll air that tomorrow, and I'll try to squeeze in one more show. And I've also thought about maybe doing some rebroadcasting, just picking a couple shows for Wednesday and Thursday and saying, this is a rebroadcast of episode whatever, you know, and uh, and putting maybe a couple of the early shows uh, on for you. Stuff from back uh, during the beginning of the financial crisis or something like that. Just something cool, a look back in time. I've been reluctant to do that because I realize since the show is content on demand, you guys can go listen to anything you want whenever you want. But maybe it would be cool to do. Maybe it would uh, get some of the older shows some uh, some airtime with some people that have never heard them. So today, uh, if you think that's a good idea, give me a comment in the comments section of today's show notes and let me know, hey, and if you have an episode you'd like me to rebroadcast, let me know what it is. All right, before we get into today's show, which of course is all about you because it's a Monday, so these are all questions, comments, commentary, articles in rigmarole like that that you send to me and you send that to Jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. It is my real email. It actually comes to me, and yes, I do answer it. Um, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one, Sawtooth Tactical. That's uh, SawTac for short. And I'll tell you what, what I like about Sawtooth is they have some really cool stuff. Everything from Magpul Magazines to Maxpedition Bags and everything in between. All the stuff that you need to live that tactical lifestyle, check out Sawtooth Tactical today. You'll find their banner and the banner of all our sponsors at the Survival Podcast in the right-hand margin. Next up, BulkMO.com. You know, I often say that you should have precious metals stored up like silver and gold and maybe even a little bit of copper. But one other thing you actually have to have is copper jacketed lead. If you do not have ammo for your gun, your gun is a very expensive club, and it's not much more use than a baseball bat. If you have ammo for it, it's the great equalizer. There is no place I know better to stock up on your ammo than BulkAmmo.com. And uh, please remember that uh, at Bulk Ammo, they now have a, uh, a member support brigade program for everybody. All orders over $200 get $10 off your order. That's better than the ammo can deal they had before. Uh, I also want to remind you guys, do check out our gear shop, our Survival Podcast gear store shop. Uh, you'll find links to that on the website. Uh, our gear shop has some really cool stuff in it, uh, some real, really neat uh, additions that just came in. We have uh, the dog tags and lanyards I was talking about last week, but we also have 
TSP branded uh, Victor Knox flashlights. These are just awesome flashlights. They're actually a discontinued item, but Victor Knox had like 10,000 of them or something like that. So we took a bunch off their hands, had them emblazoned with the TSP logo, and they're now available there. These things are bright and ultra high quality lights. They'd make a great just bug out bag light, a uh, light to keep around the house in case power goes out, a tactical light, you name it. They're an awesome light. Check them out at the gear shop. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available to uh, uh, you get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, you get great discounts from about 25 different vendors now, and I've got a couple new ones coming uh, this week. Some folks that are in a couple different people that are in the holster and leather type industries. I got one that uh, that does custom Kydex holsters, and uh, he sent me one for one of my 1911s. I wore it yesterday while I uh, stained the deck. That's pretty sweaty work to be carrying around a full-size 1911. And uh, I really enjoyed wearing it. I thought it was a great holster. So that guy, I've got a couple other leather makers that are coming on board soon, hopefully anyway. Uh, so one thing to remember about the MSB, you look at it today and all the, the benefits that it offers, I'll keep making it better for you. And with that, let's go ahead and get into today's main show. Uh, kind of a merge, though, between housekeeping and the main show. I want you guys to know something that just happened. Uh, we just upgraded the server for the site and the forum, so a lot of the forum issues should go away. We shouldn't have them anymore. At least when there is a problem, we should be able to get faster support times. I switched those, the site and the forum over to HostGator, where the uh, MSB and the audio, and the audio is the big load on the show, uh, has been for a very long time. I'm very, very impressed with their support. The important thing for you to know, if you did any blog posting or forum posting yesterday, um, and any time actually from like very, very late Saturday night through this morning, you might go back there and you might see your comment is not there or what you posted in the forum is not there. No one took it away. No one censored you or anything like that, even though we'll censor you if we feel like it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we have our rules and it's not followed all, all that jazz. But, but what's happened here is because the site was being transferred, at one point the site was in two locations. And if you posted after the transfer began, Odds are whatever you posted didn't get transferred, and then when I redirected the site and went over to the new host, we lost some stuff. That was not supposed to happen. Uh, I was supposed to be notified before the transfer started. I was not notified before the transfer started, so it was about eight hours into the transfer. It was a very large transfer um, before I was able to kind of lock things down. So that's why that happened. Nobody get their, their panties in a wad, so to speak. No one's taking your comment down. Just repost it if you want to. So now let's get into the main topic of today's show, which again is your your comments, your questions, your emails. Um, Greg from RV103 sent me this email, and uh, it's just basically a link to, uh, to an article that's titled, Ripples in Japanese Supply Chain Will Be Felt Here. Let me read a little bit of this to you. Japan makes a lot of cars and electronics, that's well known. It also produces 90% of the resin used in computer circuit boards, 70% of polymer used to make iPod batteries, about a fifth of the metal-cutting machine tools used by American manufacturers. It's a major player in ball bearings, power turbines, plastics, and rubber. What does this mean for us in America? If you want a black Ford SUV, you might not be able to find it. That's right, Japan also makes certain paint pigments. An American Ford-built car has Japanese parts and paint. Hmm. More important, the supply chain problems triggered by the Japanese earthquake and tsunami could seriously drag this country's economic recovery, uh, starting with the auto industry. Barry Lynn, a researcher in auto 
an author who wrote a book called Global Supply Chain Vulnerabilities in 2005, said the Japanese spark disruption of the auto pipeline has been hidden so far because components are shipped to the United States by sea. That means 14 to 21 days in transit. So U.S. factories have had enough inventory to work through these initial weeks. By the middle of April, there's a very good chance we're going to see many of the more many more disruptions in the United States and many more American workers out of work, at least in the automotive industry, because that's what we need is more people out of work there, right? It's even it's very likely we're going to see things get much worse before they get much better. Jap Japan is a major provider of powertrain systems and electronic components that are increasingly incorporated into U.S.-built autos and trucks. One report predicted a third of the worldwide auto production could be idled by the end of April because of Japan. We're looking at a likelihood of slow-motion cascading shutdown. It's one of those signs of things to come. Toyota this week warned dealers to expect a shortage of at least 233 replacement auto parts, possibly more. Parts in short supply include steering wheel covers and shock absorbers. Okay, I'm going to leave it there. You want to read the rest of the article, you can. What do we learn from this? We learn that Jack's not crazy when he says just about everything in the world is run under what's called just-in-time uh, inventory at this point. And what that means is that people have gotten very, very good at managing their supply chains and ensuring that when they have a supply chain that they don't have too much stuff in inventory at any one time. And if you're a business person, this makes perfect sense because when you have stuff sitting on shelves that's not selling or moving, it's like having debt with interest, only it's worse because you're holding stuff that you get taxed on. So basically, in a store-type arrangement, any kind of distribution channel, Every piece of the chain along the way from the place where it's manufactured to the place where you buy it or your mechanic buys it and bolts it to your car. And this, this applies to everything from a potato, you know, to, uh, to a part for, for a, a very high-end part for an automobile and anything else you can think of. They want as little as possible to get the job done at any one time. And you want to know exactly when stuff's going to sell so you can keep the chain moving. That's how you create efficiency. Well, that's all good and well until a giant earthquake swamps a couple nuclear reactors and shuts down a country's production and exportation. Because uh, Japan's got a lot of problems now. It's not just the nuclear reactors, and it's not just the tsunami, and it's not just the earthquake. It's all of the resources that they are uh, using to fix that stuff right now that would otherwise be like producing stuff to sell to somebody else. Now, I do think there might be a little bit of overblownness with this article, and let me tell you why. The Japanese are going to need money, and they're going to need to fix their economy, because their economy is really in the crapper from this. And if people want to buy stuff from them, they're going to put a hell of a lot of effort into getting that stuff out. That said, anything that you know been going out uh, of the ports up near Fukushima right now can't go out there anymore. Kind of like the unseen, un misunderstood effects of Hurricane Katrina. It wasn't just the hurricane. It wasn't just Louisiana. It wasn't just all of the people displaced and pushed out in other communities and all of that other kind of stuff. It was the fifth largest port in America being closed for a while. Well, Fukushima might be closed for a hell of a lot longer than uh, New Orleans was. So there's some real dangers here, but I do think the Japanese will adapt to this, but it is something to keep an eye on. Uh, next one comes to me from Eric. Eric says, uh, Hi Jack, I'm curious to your opinion on this article. Is Rawls accurate or does he have his foil hat on a little too tight? 
Um, and this is from James Wesley Rawls' blog, the Survival Blog, a blog you guys probably read, most of you anyway. I, I check it out, probably not every day, but a couple times a week. And it's, a, it's an article by James Rawls himself. And uh, James, of course, is the author of the book Patriots, Surviving the Coming Collapse, which I thought was a really good, terrible book. And what I mean by that, it's like, a, like an auto accident. It's terrible that there was an accident, but you can't take your eyes off it. You want to see what happened. That's how Patriots was for me. It read like somebody smashed a technical manual into a novel, and the way that the characters talked is the way no human being talks except for sad little people that uh, that live in a fantasy world. Uh, because when you're talking about being shot at, you don't describe the the model number of the gun that was being used to shoot at you and the model number of the gun you used to shot shoot back. And no, that just doesn't happen. But nobody get offended, because I did read the book twice, and it's terribly written and incredibly good to re- and ter- incredibly yet incredibly enjoyable as a read. So uh, that's the best I can do with that. But. I think James Rawls has done a lot for the survival industry. I like his blog. I like what he's doing. I like where he's coming from. Let me read this to you, and then I'm going to give you my thoughts on it that aren't quite one side or the other, more of the middle, which is hopefully what you've come to expect from me. Beware of Homeland Security training for local law enforcement by an insider. James says, I've been in law enforcement for the past 18 years. I've attended a variety of training over those years. During the 1990s, most training I attended was open community-oriented, sponsored by local agencies or private companies, specializing in police training. These themes common in training of the past included topics such as constitutional rights, community partnerships, youth-oriented programs, and problem-oriented policing. During the past several years, I've witnessed a dramatic shift in the focus of law enforcement. Training law enforcement courses have moved away from a local community focus to a federally dominated model of complete social control. Most training I have attended over the past two years has been sponsored by Department of Homeland Security, namely the Transportation Security Administration, or TSA, and the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA. No matter what topic the training concerns, every DH-sponsored course I have attended the past few years fails to branch, uh, never fails to branch off into warnings about potential domestic terrorists in the community. While this may sound like a valid officer and community safety issue, you may be disturbed to learn how our federal government describes the typical domestic terrorist. I'm going to just skip, skip to a list of what he has here. Things that might mark you as a terrorist are expressions of libertarian philosophies, statements and bumper stickers to that effect, Second Amendment-oriented views like being a member of the NRA or having a gun club membership or holding a CCW permit. Survivalist literature like fictional books like Patriots and One Second After are mentioned by name. Self-sufficiency, stockpiling food, ammo, hand tools, and medical supplies, fear of economic collapse. That means I guess everybody is because I think most people are scared crapless of that one right now. Uh, Religious views concerning the book of Revelation. Uh, Expressed fears of big brother or big government homeschooling, declarations of constitutional rights, civil liberties, belief in the New World Order conspiracy. And it goes on from there. talks about how um, they come up with things that would show you as being a bond maker and how they could make basically every plumber in America look like a bomb maker that took the job just so they'd have access to pipes. And you can read the rest of the article if you want to. Where do I, because the guy basically says that writes me the email, where do you fall on this? Is, is Rawls being paranoid survivalist, uh, or is he being completely rational? And I think that it's probably somewhere in the middle. And that would even be for me. Look, just like me, Rawls lives in a world where all we focus on every day 
is threats to our liberty, threats to our security, disasters, whether man-made or natural, and being a survivalist and being prepared. That can't help, but at, you know, it, there's no way that can, can not have some level of change the way you view things. And I think it's just like, you know, somebody can make a statement about guns that absolutely has nothing to do with gun control, and if you're hypersensitive to the gun control issue, all of a sudden they're the enemy, and, and, and they're trying to take your guns away. Like, like, because the guy on TV, on the cop show, referred to the casings laying on the ground instead of shell cases as bullets, uh, which is wrong, uh, it's an anti-gun message. Or because somebody called something an assault rifle, they're anti-gun. Um, and other things like that. And I think there's some of that here. I think what Rawls says he's seen inside the, the communities and the training is true. We had the... Uh, The document from the Missouri State Police, or actually sent to the Missouri State Police that was released, uh, that said things like, you know, signs of domestic terrorism include things like having a Ron Paul bumper sticker. So we know crap like that is there. I'd like to believe, however, that most local law enforcement people are actually people with brains and they can think for themselves. Um, but do I think there's a problem here? Yes. Is it the main thing I'm worried about right now? No. And let me read you the end of this article because I really actually like the, this particular piece of advice that Rawls gives. Second, get to know your local law enforcement officers. It's much more difficult for DHS to brainwash officers against people they personally know. When you are viewed as a neighbor, friend, fellow Christian, these officers are far less likely to submit your name to a terrorist watch list or view you as a potential terrorist. We want local officers to be personally offended when they hear members of their community slandered in such ways. Third, always be friendly and courteous when speaking to your local officers. God, I completely agree with that. Even if the officer has fallen for this propaganda, be sure not to resemble the negative stereotypes labeled to us. After the fifth, sixth, maybe tenth time he deals with one of us, he or she may come to realize we're no threat to law enforcement or anyone for that matter. Eventually the officer may attend one of these training sessions, hear the propaganda and say to themselves, this isn't true. I've dealt with many people like this. They're God-fearing liberty, loving Americans. They are not the enemy. Um, definitely, I think that all of us should be reaching out to local law enforcement, especially our sheriff's departments, and basically saying, do you have a volunteer program? Is there any way that if there's a, a local disaster, I could be of service and help to the community? Do you have anything like that? Do you have ride-along programs? I think these are all great things, and I think we should be building strong bonds with local law enforcement. I also think we have to face the facts that on some levels, cops just are trained to lie. So in, sp in spite of the fact that I'm telling you to reach out to local law enforcement, I'm also telling you if you ever feel like you're suspected of anything, don't talk to the police about it. Get an attorney and let your attorney do your talking for you. The, so you have to walk a fine line there. And I know that that may offend some of the folks that are in law enforcement, but I bet you a lot of law enforcement officers that listen to TSP that have been an officer for long enough to have seen the good and bad both in society and in the departments would tell you that I'm dead on with my advice there. Do everything you can to help, but at any time that you feel like you're being accused, shut your mouth. And I mean the minute you feel like you're being accused, shut your mouth and get an attorney. And when you're told, if you don't cooperate with us, that sends the wrong message. Bullshit. That's why we have a right against self-incrimination. It's not to protect the guilty from confessing. The right against self-incrimination is the right to keep your mouth shut because you might be innocent, And you might say the wrong thing because you don't know what they know. And folks, cops are trained to lie to you. I have a video that I saw last weekend that I just, 
I won't play today because it'll get my blood boiling. Maybe I'll bring it out later. Maybe I'll just post it on the blog. It was already fo posted on Facebook. It's just uh, an example of a cop just lying to a person. Just flat out lying. And, and it takes two minutes to see that the lie was a lie. Anyway, let's go on to a uh, another uh, another email here. Um, this is a big concern. This is a bigger concern for me than radiation reaching our shores from Japan. It's a bigger concern than what FEMA might be training your local police department to do. Um, this is on MS, MSN, uh, MSNBC, and it is titled, New Wave of Superbugs When the Drugs Don't Work. And this is an article out of London, and uh, let me read part of this to you. David Livermore is in a race against evolution. In his North London lab, he holds an evil-smelling culture plate smeared with bacteria. This creamy yellow growth is the enemy. A new strain of germs resistant to the most powerful antibiotics yet devised by humankind. Out on the street, Steve Owen is running the same race, physically pounding the pavements to draw attention to the problem of drug-resistant infections. Owen's father, Donald, died four years ago of multiple organ failure in a British hospital. He had checked in for a knee operation, but what he got was methicillin-resistant MSRA is what it's called, folks. I can't say it. Or a so-called superbug um, that all the drugs his doctors prescribed couldn't beat. After almost 18 months in severe pain, the infection got into his blood, overpowered his vital organs, and killed him. Owen and his wife, Jules, have pledged to run 12 big races in as many months to raise funds for charity that is working to fight MRSA. It just shouldn't have happened, says Jules, as the pair nursed their own aching limbs after running a half marathon. It was his knee. That's not something he should have died from. Welcome to a world where drugs don't work. After Alexander Fleming's 1928 discovering of the first antibiotic penicillin, we quickly claimed to, came to assume we had chemicals to beat bacteria. Sure, bugs evolved to develop resistance, but for a few decades, scientists have managed to keep developing new medicines to stay at least one step of the ever-mutating enemy. Uh, Now there's a new one called NDM1. NDM1 is what's going on the plates in Livermore and holds in his, uh, the, uh, this guy's holding in his gloved hand in the picture. You can't win against evolution, says the scientist who spends his days tracking the emergence of superbugs in a national reference laboratory in Britain's Health Protection Agency. All you can do is seek to stay a jump ahead. That's not happening now for a number of reasons. For a start, antibiotics are everywhere, giving bacteria countless opportunities to evolve escape routes. The drugs can be picked up without prescription for pennies in countries like Thailand and India and parts of Latin America. Even though their use is controlled in the West, the system encourages doctors to shoot the bugs first and ask questions later. So it goes on from there. I think the big thing that, that ends up being in this article that... I think a lot of people aren't really understanding right now, and I'll let you read the whole article if you want to, but it goes on to talk about how if these infections continue to invade our hospitals, if a person going in for knee surgery or eye surgery or a tonsillectomy continue to, uh, in larger and larger numbers, come away with a life-destroying bacterial infection or uh, resistant viral infection and all these other things that are coming up like NDM1 and, and MRSA. By the one, NDM1 is really nasty because it basically attaches itself to various bacterium. So it can be attacked to staph, it can be attacked... Uh, attached to uh, to MRSA, for instance. It can be attached to E. coli. 
so it it, it kind of has this little it's like a little playmate that makes the bad worse. And if all these things keep happening, then modern medicine as we know it dies. I mean, think about it. Going to the hospital and getting surgery for all but the most life-threatening conditions will probably be off the table for most people. Because if you're going to go in to have your knee fixed up, and right now you walk with a limp uh, or a pair of crutches, but you're alive, and if you go to the hospital, there's a 10% chance that you'll get an infection that will kill you, how likely are you going to be to just decide to walk with a limp? I think we're having to start to ask ourselves some questions here when we look at the emergence of these superbugs. Uh, I'll talk what it means to us as modern survivalists in just a second, but as a community as a whole, as a you know, global community, maybe we're doing too much with drugs? I'm just saying, right? I mean, come on. These diseases that we're using these these antibiotics on that nearly kill people, and there's like, this one has like only three antibiotics that work at all. One one is toxic and is likely to kill you itself, so it has to be used at only the most extreme uh, circumstances. The other one can't be used in urinary tract infections, which is uh, one of the big places these things grab onto. And, and then the last one, they basically said, hey, this thing was like a, it's a, a shot in the pan because it's going to have resistance to this in no time at all. If and, and these 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 conditions that are far more life threatening than a lot of the things that we used penicillin and ampicillin, ethromycin, and, and all these other uh, you know kind of rel- relatively tame antibiotics for um, didn't exist before we threw antibiotics at everything. And it, it's that we've become a drug culture, and we've actually created worse diseases than we ever had in the past. Many of the things that we've used antibiotics for, the body is perfectly capable of taking care of on its own. And, and that's just flat out the facts. If we would have reserved antibiotics for uses where they were necessary, we wouldn't be in this mess today. At least it would be moving a hell of a lot slower than it's already moving. And I kind of feel like we're at a point where the genie's out of the bottle now. They're not going to figure out how to kill this stuff with any kind of conventional research. In fact, guess what? All of the drug companies are getting out of the antibiotics industry. There's just no money in it. It's too much work for too little return. Because you go through all this trouble to make this life-saving uh, ba- uh, antibiotic. Sure, you sell it for a hell of a lot of money and you hold people hostage, your, your money or your life. Um, but then it only works for like a year or two and it doesn't work anymore and you got to make a new one and you didn't make your $800 million billion dollars back. So they're getting out of it. So it looks like GlaxoSmithKline and one other one mentioned in here are the only two uh, that are continuing with aggressive antibiotic programs. And how long do you think they're going to do it if there's no money in it? Because do you think drug companies do this stuff because they love you, or do you think they do it because they love money? So taking it a step back and looking at it as a modern survivalist, this is what it means to me. We really, and I mean we really need to be prepared for some type of a disease outbreak to be the most likely, natural, if you want to call it that, threat that we're going to have to deal with on a global or a national scale. When people ask me about an economic breakdown in something like Rawls' book, Patriots, I say, I just don't see it that way. I'm sorry, I don't. I think there's a lot of good points brought up there, but an economic collapse does not equal the end of the world as we know it in that way, in the road warrior type mentality. It just doesn't. Economies that collapse are economies that have opportunities for rebuilding. And, you know, there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of agony and it really, really sucks, but everything doesn't just dry up and blow away because an economy collapses. When 20%, 30%, 50% of your population is sick and or dies, 
that is a, a much bigger concern. Because even if society holds itself together and rebuilds, you could be one of the people that die. Or if 50% of the population's wiped out, odds are that if you're not dead, the person you love the most in the world is. Because that's what 50% means. So am I saying to run into the hills right now? I'm saying, no, I'm not saying that. But I am telling you, we really start, we really need to start thinking heavily about having a plan for, um, quarantine, self-imposed quarantine. And all of these people out there, they're not going to quarantine me, man. You better quarantine yourself. It's the only thing that protects you. Now, these particular things that we're talking about today are things that are more of a physical transmission if, you know, you're, you're not likely to get. But there was another part of this that's just, uh, let me read it to you. It's, uh, Meet the Family is called this, this section. Antibiotic-resistant drugs like MRSA and C. difficile tend to be picked up by patients in hospitals, but the risks are far broader than a hospital stay. Take a story of 100 or so Swedes who went traveling to different parts of the world and were tackled by sci- tracked by scientists to see what bugs they brought home. Of the eight who went to India, seven, that's 88%, came back with bacteria in their guts that were resistant to a whole class of antibiotics called cephaloflorins. Not one of the people in the study has been in a doctor's clinic or hospital while they were there, indicating the superbugs they picked up were freely circulating in the community. But this gives me hope. How can it give you hope, Jack, you ask? Well, dear listener, I'll tell you how. Uh, these seven people didn't get sick. I'm sure if they got sick, it would have said they were sick. They had to test them to find the bacteria. So the superbug that would resist sulfiloxin and all these other uh, antibiotics that's supposed to be so deadly was in these people's intestinal tracts and their guts and they were walking around just fine. What does that tell us about these superbugs? Just like all infections. They attack the immune system where it's weakest and when it's weakest. So we are literally swimming cauldrons of toxins and germs on a daily basis. The people that are trying to sanitize everything are going to kill us all. If we are not exposed to pathogens, our bodies don't develop resistance to them. So the people that are trying to wipe every source, every uh, every counter, every every surface they can with bleach to kill everything, they're a bigger threat than I think the people that just go out and live their lives like normal human beings. So what this tells me is if you are going to have to go to a hospital, get yourself on a good nutritional program, a good physical regime, and be in as best of the shape you can as possible when you go into the hospital and have a plan to get your ass out of that hospital as quickly as possible after whatever procedure you're having done. Because I am becoming convinced that the most dangerous place for us to be today is in a hospital. I really am. And until people stop dropping over dead after having knee surgery because their organs and blood were shut down by MRSA, I'm going to stick to that. And if that upsets anybody in the medical industry, I'm sorry. You guys created this mess. What do you think we can do to fix it? I really don't know. Um, but I really, really want you out there, folks, to have a plan, um, a big-time plan, for what you're going to do in a major disease outbreak. I do believe it's the biggest threat we have in this Article talks about disease-resistant tuberculosis again, uh, popping up and becoming worse. Check the whole article out. There'll be a link in today's show notes. Let's take another one. Gary sends me a quick and easy email. I was going to plant some castor beans for our gopher problem. Apparently, they're illegal now. What would you recommend to eliminate gophers? We have a large field north of us that seems to have an unlimited supply of gophers. Shit at the fan protein source. So shopping would be a constant activity. Maybe something along the lines of Caddyshack would be an option. I'm not sure the neighbors wouldn't mind. Um, trapping's the best option for gophers. It really is. Um, 
Now, I don't, you know, here's the thing. You're like, well, there's this field up there. So you don't have to trap all the gophers out of that field. You have to trap the gophers that come into the places and cause problems for you. Remember, gophers are part of the ecosystem. What we want to do is control them, not completely eliminate them. They actually have a purpose. I know when you're growing food and they eat it, it's hard to imagine they have a purpose, but they do. That big field up there will eventually become, if nobody bothers it, will turn into a forest. And the gophers and all their little tunnels and all the things that they've done will be part of how that forest forms because it'll catch water and, and collect nutrients and things like that. So that's the purpose of a gopher. Now, the castor beans being illegal, I have not heard of this. I still know a lot of places you can, as far as I know, order castor beans. I don't like growing castor bean plants because, obviously, uh, they are highly toxic. Uh, it's the, uh, the uh, I think it's the, the outer portion of the bean itself, the, the uh The, the meal, the shell, that uh, is what they use to make ricin, which is one of the most toxic substances there is. Um, so I, I'm not a big fan of growing anything that's highly toxic, but I think if you want to, you can. Is this a local thing maybe, Gary? I don't know. Does anybody else know about castor beans being made illegal? If so, let me know. I, I know where they're growing wild right now, so I, I don't know how they're going to pull off getting rid of those. Anyway, uh, let's go ahead and... Uh, move on to another one. This is an interesting one because I think it's uh, a person you might expect me to call an ass clown that was enforcing this law that I'm not going to call an ass clown because I think this is this is actually the right way to enforce a law when you have no choice because you're an official uh, and the right tone to take with the person that you're dealing with. Uh, but it is sad. I think the law is stupid and I'd like to see a change. And odds are that Oakland, for all the problems Oakland has, they'll probably fix this one. Um, and it, the title is Oakland Gardener Questions Need for Permit to Sell Produce. Novella Carpenter took over a vacant lot on the hard scrapple corner of West Oakland eight years ago and turned it into a working farm with vegetables, goats, rabbits, and sometimes pigs. Carpenter milked the goats, made cheese, and ate much of the produce. She also wrote a popular book, Farm City, about the experience and became an icon of the Bay Area's urban farmer movement. But the future of her ghost town farm is in question. This week, Oakland officials suggested it may need to close. The reason she sells excess produce and needs a costly permit to do so. It seems ridiculous, says Carpenter at 38. I need a conditional use permit to sell chard. The news, stumbled, the news stunned the region's urban farmers and their supporters who question how a fundamental human task that goes back millennia could be illegal. It's incredibly sad that people can't grow food and sell it to folks, said Barbara Finnan, executive director of City Slicker Farms, an Oakland nonprofit that runs a produce markets and helps people start their own urban farms. Profit, not personal use. The city planner, who you would think I'd going to call an ass clown, I'm not going to call the city planner an ass clown here because she doesn't make law. Let me read to you what this person says. Who visited Carpenter's 4,500 square foot plot at 28th Street and Martin Luther King Jr. said he sympathized with Carpenter, but the rules are clear. Carpenter is, quote, raising these things for a profit, said Chris Candle, a planner in the city's building department. If you're doing this for your own home consumption, it would not matter. Though his report is not final, Candle said Carpenter probably has three options. Pay for a conditional use permit shut down the farm or not charge anything and face sanctions from the city, or not change anything and face sanctions from the city. The permit would probably cost several thousand dollars, Candle said, 
and Carpenter would also have to pay penalties for operating without such a license as she is now. Carpenter works about 25 hours a week at the farm and takes in only about $2,500 a year before expenses. So buying the permit doesn't work. And fining her for operation in violation of the permit is just stupid. And somebody needs to smack around the city of Oakland. Candle said a complaint about rabbits on the property led to the city inquiry. So once again, a freaking neighbor has to be a pain in the ass. Carpenter believes the critic was upset because she was making rabbit pot pies available for an $8 donation. Carpenter taught herself to grow food and raise livestock. She went dumpster diving in Oakland's Chinatown to feed her pigs and learned how to butcher from top chefs. I, feel, I, I really like to feel connected to the food and understand the stories of where my food came from, she said. When I started, I did it to feed myself. Then I realized that in Oakland, people are really hungry, hungry, so people in the neighborhood came and picked food. But she realized there were other benefits, too. So it goes on from there. But basically, what this city manager said is, we need to change the law. But as long as the law is a law, we have to enforce it. So... And, and the guy's actually taken a, a decent tone with her. So I think that this is an example of how an official placed into an uncomfortable situation can deal with it as best they can and be reasonable. And notice, he didn't run in and immediately shut her down. He's making a report. He's telling her what's going on. He's giving her an opportunity to try to figure out what to do. If I were here, her, this is what I would do. I would say... Dear City of Oakland, I think your law is stupid. However, I didn't know your law existed, or I would not have been in violation of it. From, the, from here to four forward, I am not selling my produce. I am doing it for my own personal consumption, which you said is perfectly fine. Now get the hell out of here. And if you're going to sell your food, Miss Carpenter, uh, and I'm not saying you should have to do this. Please understand that. I'm not advocating for authority here. I'm saying how to get around it until something can be done about it. Take your food away to somewhere else. Sell it there. And keep your mouth shut about the fact that that's what you're doing in your local area. That that would be how I'd get around this, and I would work to get this law changed. I think this is a terrible, terrible law. I do like the way she's taking it as well. Let me read the uh, the final segment called Gorilla Gardener. Carpenter said it's been a learning experience. After starting out as a squat farmer, she bought the plot for 30000 in December. The previous owner sold it to her as a favor. It was so great squatting, she said, I didn't have costs. I was a total renegade doing something totally illegal. But now that I'm a property owner, that's when they actually come down on me. <laughs> I can't fly under the radar and be a punk anymore. I actually have to be an adult and deal with these things. Well, I don't want to put down this lady because she's obviously doing something great. But if you're 38 and just figuring out you need to be an adult, that might be part of your problem with a few things. Um, but yeah, isn't it interesting that it wasn't until she actually like owned the property that they came after her? And that makes you wonder, you know, why try to do things the right way sometimes? Well, again, I do think that Oakland is probably one of the best uh, farming communities out there, honestly, urban farming communities out there. And I think that this law can be changed, and there's probably tons of popular support for it. So you folks in Oakland, make the change. Get it done. Demand the change. And demand a grandfather clause that gives amnesty to anybody that's in this situation right now. Let's go ahead and take another uh, one of your emails. So here's the next one comes to me from Lori. Lori says, I have a second house for sale. When it sells, should I do a solar panel thing or a wind turbine thing for power when shit hits the fan? 50-year-old widow living in Kansas. I have two handy sons-in-law that would be the ones setting it up for me. I own my home free and clear, and I just want something to keep the freezer going and cable TV on because I'm addicted. I listen to your show and really have ramped up getting prepared because of it. Thanks for everything you do. I've learned a lot. Lori, this is what I would do. I would do either the solar or the wind thing in Kansas. Wind would work really well, and odds are you probably have 
um, fairly open area, so solar would probably work very well as well. Even though you're going to have your sons-in-law do the work, I would look for some local companies that can come out and give you bids on material in support of the installation, and I would get estimates from them about the production capacity of what they're recommending. You may very well find that instead of going full-tilt solar or full-tilt wind, some type of a hybrid design with solar and wind together uh, will do more for you. Make sure that you make the investment here, regardless of which way you go, though, and put in a battery backup grid-tied system so that you do have battery reserves. So if the power goes down, you have the ability, when you're producing power in excess, to store it with a battery backup system. I would definitely make that investment. This is how I feel about solar and wind. Purely grid-tied systems. In other words, a grid-tied solar system, grid-tied wind system works this way. Produces power for your home at any point where your power consumption is particularly low and uh, you're, not, uh, per- you're not using all that's being produced, your meter basically runs backwards. You send the electricity back to the electric company. In some stupid states, you don't get paid for it. In most states today, though, you do. You get to sell the power back. Um, that's great if you want to save polar bears. That's great if you want to collect your, you know, cut your electric bill. But it's not. It's really an environmentalist mentality. It is not a survivalist mentality. And there's no problem with being both. But I do think it's bad when we're one to the exclusion of the other in either direction. Honestly, I'm a big environmentalist. I'm all for alternative fuels. So when we add battery backup, or if we go with you know an off-grid system, either way, we're actually creating resiliency and redundancy. Because the odds that you're going to have the power fail, you know, a lot of times that happens when at night. And that's when you really need your lights. And there's no sun. Maybe there's wind, but is there enough wind? You see what I'm saying? So I would definitely make sure you look at doing uh, the investment into the battery backup system as well as the production system. So you may indeed with that investment decide then solar and wind together are too expensive. I'm going to do solar or wind. Uh, and in that case, you really, again, find some local suppliers, get them out to your site to do a survey. You're looking for support and materials of the installation because your sons-in-law are going to do the majority of the labor. But uh, a good company is going to give you support and help you make the right decision. A lot of times you'll find a company that can do solar and wind uh, as far as the supply side. And if they can do both and they tell you, I would definitely do X versus Y, Solar versus wind or wind versus solar, and they sell both. Well, they could sell you either one, so you can trust them. If they only do solar, and son of a gun, they say, really what you want here is solar, you need to talk to somebody that does wind. And if the wind person only does wind and say, well, you really need wind, um, you, you, you try to try to find somebody that's a little bit impartial. Look for a supplier that supplies both sides, and you really shouldn't, especially in your area, have trouble finding that. That's my advice there, but I definitely think it's a good investment. Got a joke for you, because it is a Monday, and we can all use a good laugh to get started with. Uh, this came from Terry. Terry sends me this email, and it says, One wish. And it says, I met a fairy today, and she said she would grant me one wish. I want to live forever, I said. Sorry, said the fairy. I'm not allowed to grant wishes like that. Fine, I said, then I want to die after Congress gets their heads out of their asses. You crafty bastards, said the fairy. Thanks, Terry. Uh, something to keep us a little lighthearted today. 
Um, next one comes from the blog, and I've gotten this question in a variety of ways since we've introduced the concept of hoogle culture to the community. Hoogle culture is we dig a great big hole and we put a bunch of trees in it and we bury it, we plant over top of it, or we stack a bunch of trees and old wood up and we put dirt on top of it and we plant into the dirt, and then the trees turn into a great big rotted sponge by the second year, and we can grow anything we want pretty much anywhere we want with very little irrigation and absolutely most places no irrigation whatsoever. So then people say things like, I have a question, if you take a container, fill it halfway up with wood chips and the rest of the way up with dirt, is that considered hugo culture? Uh, yeah, but it wouldn't really work very well in my opinion, and here's why. If you're going to do anything with containers, we did a lot last week and I talked about self-watering containers, you might as well just do self-watering containers. If you put wood chips into a container and then put dirt on top of them, you're probably going to get a pretty heavy anaerobic breakdown, and that creates stink and smell and rot and heat and all that kind of stuff. In the ground, where you have the entire earth to dissipate this stuff into, that's great, because it's a natural process. In a container, we've contained it into a small area. So I just don't see why somebody would even try that versus doing a self-watering container. I think that we have a propensity when we hear somebody doing something that we want to change it. And when we get something that really, really works, the smartest thing I think we can do is at least before we change it, do it the way that it's already being done. Um, I just don't think wood chips in your containers are a good idea, guys. And that was from Joe on the blog. But the ver versions of that question have probably come from 25 different people in the last two weeks. Um... There's another one here that I want to read to you, and this is just a lesson from a listener. Hi, Jack. With respect for your message, I had an incident the other day that made me think of your show. I learned a couple of things I'd like to share with your audience, and this is from Dan. Uh, I was parking my motorcycle in my driveway. I let the bank bike down before the stand was fully engaged. It dropped on me, taking, taking me with it and breaking my ankle. Thankfully, I had family around to help, and the injury is not as bad as it could have been. But there are two lessons to learn here. The first lesson, carelessness and stupidity can hurt you. This only happened because I wasn't paying attention. I was performing a routine act that's always on autopilot. If I had been focused on the task at that moment, I would have treated, treated the act of parking a motorcycle with procedural diligence, avoiding any potential harm. Inattention led to injury, which contradicts the whole ambition of prepping. The second lesson, no matter how stoic we fantasize ourselves to be in these situations, pain is pain, and it can be debilitating. No matter how many hits Bruce Willis takes on screen, if this had happened to happened in an emergency scenario, I would have been a serious burden to my family and those first few in those first few hours and could have brought them real harm in the, if the situation had required rapid mobilization. I'll be adding crutches and a wheelchair to my preps for sure. I'd like you to share this with your audience so they can examine routine things they do every day that have potentially hazardous outcomes and maybe pay closer attention as they do those things. I'm sure we all, I'm sure we all take great care in handling our, care in handling and carrying our firearms and maybe the same focus could be applied to other areas of our lives. Many thanks for your great 
inspiration, Dan, who is from Vancouver Island. So, Dan, I completely agree. And this is also why I say when I talk about like putting together a documentation package, that things in your documentation package need to be like the phone number of people that do tree removal and stuff like that. And a big bad survivalist always says, Jack, I got a steel chainsaw and I got a second chill chainsaw as a backup and me and my buddies are just going to get in there. We're going to be the ones cutting them trees down until the tree goes through your roof and breaks your leg. You know, or until you're not home when the disaster hits because you got called away for some reason and your family's on their own. Or any other one of these things that happen because we're human. And this is a perfect example of that. You know, I'm going to be the one defending our home and you've got a broken ankle. You can't get up. And this happened from parking a motorcycle. Things like this can happen to us anywhere, anytime, anyplace. Uh, one day we were, I was out playing softball with my son. And he hit a pop fly, and I ran to grab it, and I pulled a hamstring, and it was one of the most god-awful, painful things I've ever experienced. I practically crawled from the field back to where the car was, because, you know, if it would have been any worse, it would have basically said, go get the truck and drive it across the grass, even though you're not supposed to. But I managed not to do that. And I limped for a week. That's just a torn hamstring. I wouldn't even probably fully torn. If it was, it wouldn't have healed that fast. But there's all kinds of things that can go wrong, and we really do need to pay attention to what we're doing with our mundane, everyday stuff. That's the easiest stuff to get hurt with. I remember back, uh, way, way back, I was ringing a cable um, to uh, to do some work for some fiber optic work, and you just basically ring the outside of the cable with a razor knife to remove the sheathing. And I was, I had just met Dorothy and I was thinking about something that we had said or something. And, you know, you're in that initial stages of a relationship and all where the infatuation's running deep and you're kind of absent-minded. And I sliced the side like a, like peeling, like taking an apple and taking a knife and just cutting a slice out of it. I sliced the slice out of the side of my thumb. I, you know, I just basically bandaged it up and let it heal. I can't believe the way it healed. There's really no evidence that it was ever that way. And people are like, well, why don't you go to the doctor and get stitches? It can't get stitches. It's a flat cut. There's nothing to stitch together. I sliced it off. There's a piece of the fingernail with it with a slice. And it happened like that. Well, you know, it was no big deal. Right? I, uh, you know, basically I, uh, I bandaged it up and, and it healed. But in a real bad situation where you're dealing with infectious diseases like MRSA and stuff like that, it's an opening. It's a wound. It's a, you know, and it should hit the fan where sanitation's down and all. Little stupid things like that can get you killed. So we all do need to be more vigilant. Thanks for Dan for being honest about your own weakness and your own mistake. And I think you called it, uh, carelessness. You know, I appreciate you being honest and open about that. And hopefully other people will learn from it and take a little bit more vigilance in their daily lives. I got one last story for you guys today. This one almost sounds like it's out of a science fiction novel. I've told you. I've told you over and over and over again that these people with this GMO crap won't stop. This came to me from a bunch of people. Um, just listen to this headline. It just, again, it just reads like you can't believe you're hearing that this is really real. And it's in the Telegraph, which is a UK online uh, rag, and they seem to be the ones that always bring stuff like, like this out first. Um, genetically modified cows produce, quote, human, unquote, milk. The scientists have successfully introduced a human genes into 300 dairy cows to produce milk with the same properties as human breast milk. Human milk contains high quantities of key nutrients that can help to boost the immune system of babies and reduce the risk of infections. The scientists behind the research believe the milk from herds of genetically modified cows could produce an alternative to human breast milk and formula milk for babies. 
which is often considered criticized as being inferior substitute. They hope genetically modified dairy products from herds of similar cows could be sold in supermarkets. The research has the backing of major of a major biotechnology company. Oh, that makes me feel great about it. The work is likely to inflame opposition to GM foods. Critics of the technology and animal welfare groups reacted angrily to the research, questioning the safety of milk from genetically modified animals and its effect on the cattle's health. But Professor Ning Li, scientist who led the research and director of the Key State Laboratories of Agrobiotechnology at China Agricultural University, insisted the GM milk would be as safe to drink as milk from an ordinary dairy cow. He said the milk tastes stronger than normal milk. We aim to commercialize some research in the area in coming three years for the human-like milk. Ten years or maybe more time will be required to finally pour the enhanced milk into the consumer's cup. China is now leading the way in the research on genetically modified food, and the rules on technology are more relaxed than those in place in Europe. You read the rest of the article if you want to yourself. I just have one question for you. Has the whole world gone batshit crazy? Really? I mean, come on, we're going to modify a cow to have human breast milk? I got a freaking idea. This is a... This is an earth-shattering, technology leap, just unbelievable leap into the future to how we can provide babies with milk with the proper profile for their growth as infants instead of genetically modifying a cow. Women that have babies could breastfeed. What do you think? You think, is it crazy or would it work? Those that think like this is a weird thing to do, are you ignoring 10,000 years of human history? This is how the system was designed. You know, and I'm not going to come down on you for using formula or something like that, but really if you want the same profile as human breast milk, I'm thinking that you women were gifted with these these things that attract men's attention, that also attract babies' attention, and they produced human breast milk. They're called breasts. So maybe we don't need to go monkeying around genetically modifying a cow and then spending 10 years tweaking it and saying it's perfectly safe until we put it into the consumer's cup. I bring this up because it just keeps driving home my point. When I got on the air and I first started talking about genetically modified organisms, there were quite a few people out there that thought I was just one of the eco-hippie freaks and that I wasn't open to new technologies and all oh, this is only for corn and soy to feed animals, not to feed us. And now they started feeding it to us and people became a little bit more open. But what I was saying from the very beginning, the problem with this genetically modified crap is they won't stop. They won't stop Ever. They're going to genetically modify everything, including human beings, in the end. That's where this is headed. We now have genetically modified chickens, genetically modified pigs, genetically modified cows, genetically modified salmon, genetically modified corn, and soy. Wheat's being held back right now, but they've already done it. It's there, it's just not into the marketplace yet, and it probably is because it's probably escaped. We got genetically modified corn oil, we got genetically modified cotton oil. We're spraying herbicides all over everything, and we're just heading full tilt more forward into this thing with no understanding of the consequences that we're going to create. And I want you to think about this. The target market for this product is the infant child. This product is being specifically genetically modified so they can be fed to children during their developmental stages with absolutely no understanding of the consequence 
And the assurance that we have that it's going to be okay is from the people, from the major biotechnology firm that stand to make billions of dollars on this. It's just their personal assurance that it's just the same. It's fine. It's actually better for you. It has a stronger taste, but there's, there's nothing to be worried about. You know what makes me think of Monsanto telling the people of Anniston, Alabama, you're crazy, you're not really sick, there's nothing to be worried about. It's okay, it's safe. There's nothing there. And when they got caught dumping poisons into Anniston, and they got caught actually causing all of these diseases in Anniston, Alabama, the people that ran the company said, we're not even sorry for lying about it. We're sorry it happened. We're not sorry about lying about it. We did what we had to do to protect our shareholders. These are the people that you're trusting to play God, to rebuild the genomes, to rebuild DNA, to take fish genes and splice them into a corn using a carrier virus. You see, that's how you do this. And I want you to understand very, very clearly how this is done. It's not like I take a DNA strand, right, and I just look for a gene and I pluck it out with some kind of microscopic tweezers, and then I go over to my other DNA strand and I pluck it out and I, I pull out the gene that I don't think it needs and I stick it in there. That's not how it works. We can't do that. Viruses do that. We take the virus and we infect it with a gene and we introduce the virus to the new DNA strands and we allow the virus to inject the gene. We're building super viruses that do what we tell them to, with the belief that they'll always just do what they tell them to. We tell them to, and they won't get away. And we're creating new species and new creations with this. Oh, by the way, the cow milk that the cow produced—that's actually human milk. If you put a baby cow there and let him try to live off that mother cow, he'll die. The milk won't support him because it's designed for humans now. Well, you think about that. So we're going to create a new cow that can't have new cows of its own. It's a cow that's only purpose is to produce baby formula with the same profile as human breast milk when half the population of the planet is human and has breasts that produce that kind of milk. Now again, I'm not ladies, I'm not coming I'm not going to tell you what to do, right? I'm not telling you whether you should breastfeed or not. That's up to you. But I am telling you if you want breast milk for your baby, you have a supply. An unending supply as long as you're alive, it's there. I understand people go away and have to babysit and things like that, and all that stuff that goes with that, that's fine. But it's not justification for genetically modifying a cow, taking the output of something we do not understand and feeding it to the most weak and helpless members of our society. It's absolutely, positively sick. And it's why you need to take control of your own food supply. When they're done, unless you're producing it for yourself, there will be nothing left. And to those of you that say eventually the genes will escape and get in, and they'll even infiltrate our gardens, and there'll be some genetically modified traits carried over, yes, there will. You are the resistance. Fight as best you can. And what you produce will still be safer for you than what they produce for you. We do not know how bad it really is. That's the truth. And we won't know how bad it really is for a long time. Until then, the only thing we can do is take some control over what goes into our body and fight this every step of the way. With that, I am going to wrap up today. Sorry to end on a heavy subject, but that's one I just couldn't leave out today. Uh, absolutely unbelievable. Remember, if you'd like your question or your commentary or your article or anything like that on a show like this, send it to jack at the survivalpodcast.com with question for Jack, article Jack for Jack, video for Jack, comment for Jack, what have you in the subject line. 
and I will try to get it on the air. I get between 300 and 600 of these a day, so they won't all get on the air, but I will do what I can. Uh, with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is